You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is I won't be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, um, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to cover the basics. We've been going through the uh, Manual of Insight, the new translation by the Vipassana Metis Foundation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means um, uh, momentary concentration insight practice. Uh, And so uh, we're going to continue on in the chapter called Development of Mindfulness. And uh, the, the, the subheading is Learning and Logical Thought. Knowledge gained through learning and logical thought is not insight. Mental and physical phenomena are are understood as they really are by being aware of them in terms of their characteristics and so on, on the moment they occur. This understanding or insight is superior to learning and logical thought. It is superior even to knowledge derived from tranquility meditation. The textual reference on this point is, Wisdom of full understanding is a knowledge that understands ultimately real phenomena by noting them in terms of their characteristics and so on. In the ultimate sense, this knowledge, this is knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena and knowledge that discerns conditionality. So in this uh, section, what Mahasi is beginning to do is lay out the first five stages of the 16 stages of insight or the first five stages of the progress of insight. Uh, ultimate reality or the understanding is the first stage called Nama Rupa or body-mind. And that's where you're really attempting to soak in and uh, experience the sensing experience and the quality of the sensing experience. So if you were looking at this through the lens of the Satipatthana, that would be the first two foundations, the body-mind and then uh, Vedna or feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. When he talks about conditionality, what he's talking about is the second stage. And so what we're looking at there, and this is a meditation practice that we'll do this evening, is the uh, conditions of the previous moment set up the conditions for this moment, and this moment's conditions set up the conditions for the next moment of uh, awareness. And so when we begin to explore this in meditation, what we're looking at is paying attention to where the mind moves from the present moment into the next moment. You'll notice that there's this process of the mind deciding whether to stay with the present moment condition or to shift into into another uh, sensing experience in the next moment. That if you weren't in the place you are in this moment, the next moment's attention would not be available to you. And then as you explore this, you can begin to see that one situation sets up the next, sets up the next, and that 
the way that attention moves is not arbitrary. It's really based on the previous conditions. So an example would be that you're listening to the sound of my voice uh, so that you're in auditory space and then maybe the mind moves to a refrain of music that's coming through the window and because the mind engages the sound of the music then it's recognized as a particular pattern of experience and you, you have associations to it then the mind is drawn to visual thinking which is then playing a remembrance of the, the, uh, the pattern of experience that's associated with the rhythm or the pattern of the music and then that visual experience, because it has an emotional quality to it, uh, causes the arising of a particular pattern of emotion where the mind is then drawn. So that you can begin to see this flow of awareness based on what each moment brings into consciousness. Does that make sense? Yes, but is it 100% that way? No. Um, what would not be that way? Okay, here's one. Um, there's, um, I, let's say, do I, I, I want to say something besides deja vu. Um, you get this flash, all of a sudden your mind just goes to um, something so random in, that you look at, well, did that have to do with what? Did it have to do with smell? Did it have to do with sight? Did it have to do with feeling? And you cannot figure out how that popped up in the mind. Right. So that that's rare. Well, I think that, that even if it did pop up in the mind, some, some condition of the moment before it set that into motion, whether you can figure it out or not. Okay. But, but I, I can, if I could add to that, that happens to me all the time. I close my eyes and I'm standing at 23rd and 7th Avenue in Manhattan. There's nothing that, it, there is absolutely nothing going on in my life in my thought thinking process that led me to think that that moment would arise for me. Right, so you just said 23rd and 7th and my mind immediately went to 23rd and 7th and then I was bumping into Jimmy McCourt who I um, uh, had lunch with in 1982 on that corner. Um, um, so, um, I, I think that there, that it's less interesting really to attempt to create a narrative that connects it, and then to understand that in some way there's a connection, some way that pattern is uh, recognized by the body-mind. It's hard to um, um, know necessarily what patterning you've attributed to what, and what what context of patterning that you're recognizing consciously. What may be more interesting is to notice that that the flow from this moment into the next moment produced that, and then begin to be open to the the nature of the way that the body mind responds rather than trying to come up with a narrative that explains it. Is that making sense? Like I'll get very upset that I can't figure out why. Like what is making me like have this moment that's disconnected or this thought and this image in my mind of like 
someone that's completely unrelated to what's going on in my life right now, and then I'll get frustrated. It happens to me every day, all the time. Right. So maybe rather than attempting to figure it out, just watch, and maybe in the watching you'll begin to see a larger pattern. There are so many elements that come into creating the experience. It could be any of those elements that's part of the patterning. And we don't even need to know necessarily, just to know that these conditions are happening. Is that making sense? Um, so now I, my mind is vividly playing this encounter I had with Jim McCord in 1982 because you said 30, 23rd and 7th. Um, and then it's going to me walking down 7th uh, last March. I don't know why walking down 7th last March is associated with um, having lunch with Jimmy McCord on, in the diner on the corner of 37th and like this. All things 7th Avenue are associated regardless of time period. Um, but what's useful I think in this is this 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 openness to begin to watch how the mind moves and to begin to have a sense that the previous moment is setting up this moment and that the next moment is following in that. Um, can you hear the bird? So I was just thinking that the, the usual example I give is that I was listening to somebody talk and then I heard a bird and then I went from the thought of do I tell that story or not to hearing the bird which I had not previously heard. Is that making sense? But thinking about telling the story. About a bird and then suddenly my mind was sensitive to the sensing experience of the bird which I then heard whereas I hadn't heard it before. I didn't hear it before either until you mentioned it. Right. And all of a sudden it was very clear. Right. So that's the, the, the thing. The bandwidth of consciousness is extremely narrow. The body-mind, the unconscious processing of the body-mind is very expansive in, in that way. So that we're really getting very limited amount of data compared to what's being taken in. Uh, and that also is something to consider. That the really the way that we know what the body-mind is doing by these little bits of report that we get, but they're very scant compared to what the body-mind is doing. And depending on the orientation of uh, our attention in the moment, different pieces will come in. There could be a whole unconscious process going on, and then you're just getting these little bulletins from it. And so part of it is this um, uh, allowing it and then beginning to learn the inferential nature of insight that can come from that. Inferential. Remember that inferential insight suggests that we don't need to have total awareness of everything at all times, that if we explore a situation through meditation and we know that these five elements must be present for that overall experience to be happening, that if we're narrowly focused on any one of those five aspects, we can be confident that the other four aspects have to be there in order for that experience to be happening. 
We don't need to have a complete experience of something. We only have to have an awareness of enough of it. And, and in Vipassana, which means to divide and to see, we're pulling things apart into their baser elements and then allowing them to come together to know the experience completely, even though that in, in, in a particular moment of sensing, we can know the sensing experience and what we make it into, and that if we're focused narrowly on one element, those other elements are going to have to be there for that experience to be present. Is that, is that making sense? So that um, what we want to do in our meditation practice is to be able to pay attention to what's easy and obvious and that we don't need to do better than that. And as we practice more and more, our, our capacity to detect subtler and subtler patterns will, will develop. But in the beginning or wherever we are, we really just need to be paying attention to what's easy and obvious. This may relax some of the frustration. Uh, if the answer isn't easy and ob obvious, or the object isn't easy and obvious, we don't need to have more awareness of it in order to have a complete experience. What we really need to do is have a complete experience of the sensing process as best we can in that moment, and then to pay attention to what we make it into. Is that making sense? In the ultimate sense, this knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena and knowledge that discerns conditionality. Full understanding is an understanding of ultimately real phenomena derived from knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena and conditionality and is superior to knowledge derived from learning, logical thought, and even some derived from tranquility meditation. This passage makes it clear that learning and logical thought do not even belong in the realm of basic knowledge, let alone to be that of higher insight knowledges. Is that making sense? No? It sounds like you would want to be reading this book. In order to have understanding? Um, you know, it's interesting, in the meditation world you have a lot of people that spend a lot of time talking about states and about different things that you could get into and different phenomena that you can get into, and many, many, many books are written. Um, and if you look at Asian culture, for instance, only one out of seven monastics in Asia actually meditate, so that there's, and the Buddha does talk about a different path to uh, enlightenment, including study. And so we're really seeing here reflected a bias of uh, meditating people. In the West, the, the development of American Buddhism is, is largely based on meditation. Almost all of American Buddhism is uh, developed around some kind of meditation practice. But this is not true of the Asian uh, uh, lineages that are here. If you go to, uh, for instance, a lot of the uh, Korean Buddhist 
churches in the neighborhood where I live, it, it really would be more the experience that you would have in a Christian church where there's like a Dharma talk or a lecture and there's no meditation and really it's largely based on community. Um, my bias has always been to practice and so and I have a bias toward a deep practice but uh, I think that what he's trying to get at here is that the knowledge of ultimate experience is not derived from thinking it but by experiencing it so he's not discouraging study no he's just saying that it isn't uh, as valuable as experience and so maybe the some balance between that when I first began studying with Shinzen, he would say, in the perfect world, perfect understanding and perfect practice is the ideal. But if you have a choice between perfect understanding and perfect practice, perfect practice is more valuable than perfect understanding. You can have a complete awareness of what the texts say, but if you don't have the practice, then you may not have an experience that's liberating. You may not be able to retrain the mind. The mind will still function in the same way and you'll know that that's what's happening but it'll still continue to function in that way rather than beginning to change the underlying uh, functioning of the body-mind. Um, One must fully understand the eye, one must fully understand visible form and so on. In this way, generally exposing different points one after the other in uh, due order. If a person were to note one object five different ways, many other objects would pass by unobserved. In that event, one's mind cannot note quickly enough to notice all five factors in every instance of sight. Such an approach would also contradict um, uh, the Pali Canon, which says that a person who has reached that the stage of insight knowledge of dissolution can be aware of both the disappearance of an object and of their awareness of its disappearance itself. So a person should observe only one object for each instance of sight. One's purpose of noting and understanding of One's purpose of noting and understanding is fulfilled when one observes and understands one distinct phenomena among, among the five. Um, as the mature stages of the first two knowledges, whenever one notes seeings, one comes to know that seeing did not exist before and that it has now appeared. Thereby one understands the appearance of these five phenomena. One further understands the disappearance of these phenomena, seeing them vanish after they have arisen, using sharp mindfulness, one sees them instantly disappear. When one begins to see arising disappearance, one understands the characteristic of impermanence. So he's now describing the entrance into the third insight of the 16 stages. Um, Can we say that again? As, a, as the mature stages of the first two knowledges, where one notes seeing, one comes to know that seeing did not exist before and now has appeared. So 
the first insight is the sensing experience itself. The second insight is the conditionality of it. Uh, and then the third insight is an exploration of the characteristics of anatta, anicca, and dukkha, or uh, no self, impermanence, and uh, not self. So in seeing, uh, the sensing experience arise. In knowing the conditionality of one moment to the next, one is then uh, able to detect the nature of impermanence in all things. Because uh, paying attention to the uh, present moment leading to the next moment, we become aware that the present moment is impermanent and is then followed by the next moment, which then ends and is followed by the next moment. We understand then that all things are impermanent. Everything arises and passes based on that view. Is that making sense? So this is, in some sense, how this uh, Vipassana insight organized around liberation happens. How they move from one insight into the next. Um, on the other end, this applies mental defilements. Oops, sorry, wrong paragraph. When one begins to see arising and disappearance, one understands the characteristics of impermanence. Because phenomena are not, not exempt from arising and di disappearance, they are unsatisfactory. This is understanding the characteristics of unsatisfactoriness. And because they arise and disappear, even though one doesn't wish them to, there is no self that has any control over them. This is the characteristic of not-self. So, <clears throat> when seeing the arising appearance, one understands the characteristic of impermanence because Im phenomena are not exempt from arising and passing, they are unsatisfactory. This is the understanding of unsatisfactoriness. So dukkha, the, uh, everything arises and passes, including phenomena. So even in the noting of the ultimate experience of sensing, we notice each thing arise and pass. And uh, that equates to the broader concept of old age, sickness, and death, that this whole lifetime doesn't last to getting what you want and then losing it to not getting what you want. <coughs> um, and then having to put up with things you don't want. And then um, the last one is the subtle irritation that nothing is actually the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. Which pushes you in the direction of understanding self and no self since you're not in charge of anything who's in charge right since there's no self controlling everything who's controlling it I think I need to get a glass of water <clears throat> there is one to get Sense. <clears throat> it's complex. 
Well, you begin just by doing the sensing of the first insight, and then when you feel comfortable with that, then you move into the exploration of the conditionality. Um, that The way to do that is simply to watch your attention, <coughs> and where does it go? Um, what you'll notice, I think, is that other sensations are competing for your attention, and then your attention is drawn to one in particular, and it goes to it. When you say conditionality, do you mean pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? No. What do you mean by conditionality? That this moment sets up the conditions for where your attention goes in the next moment. So you watch. You're aware that your attention moves from object to object, right? Yes. Yes, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are you paying attention to the moment when your attention moves to the other object? Yes. What's directing that? What is it that what is it that determines where it goes? If you don't make any attempt to control it, then you're just watching it move, right? But it, it is headed towards some place. It's picking some place to go. So you, you watch the arising of the sensing experience, but you pay particular attention to the moment that it shifts into another experience. So is that um, noting gone? No. No, it's noting where your attention goes. But Is there an exercise in meditation that we do for this? We'll do it tonight. We've been doing it a little bit. Right. Just watching where it goes. See, hear, feel. <clears throat> we'll do see, hear, feel. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the and third then aspect will be where did my where did my attention go? What arose that was attracting my attention, and where did my attention go? In seeing where your attention goes, in, you notice impermanence. That attention was in one thing, and that arose and passed, and then you moved to another, and that arose and passed. Your interest in the object arose and passed. And everything actually arises and passes. Because everything arises and passes, and nothing is lasting, that, that's what we mean by unsatisfactoriness, right? Nothing lasts, and because nothing lasts, the, the quality of the human experience, or the totality of the human experience, is of itself unsatisfactory. In that part? The unsatisfactory. No, actually, it doesn't go away, and neither does this, the, the fact that there's no sense of, there's no lasting, ongoing, permanent sense of self. This puts you into the fourth of the, the stages, which he's not addressing in this particular paragraph, is that everything arises and passes, and if you become highly concentrated on that in all sense gates, you'll notice that the arising and passing is active, and that in noticing the arising and passing, the casual fixation, the casual solidness of all experience begins to break away, and you move into a flow state. Have you all had the experience of a flow state? Do you know what I mean by that? 
if the visual field were to be flowing and not fixated, you would not see people or chairs or floor or ceiling or walls. You would be seeing a flow of colored dots and grayscale dots. But you'd be aware. You would be aware that, that you had not fixated the visual field and that everything was flowing. Okay. Um, the uh, the uh, quality of the flowing experience would begin to move through the different sense gates and when it becomes profound then the, the, the barrier between all of the sense gates dissolves and you're just in this continuous flowing of energy and it, when, when it becomes complete you're in a state of dissolution and you can no longer detect the body before the dissolution, um, you are aware, though. And you're still aware in dis dissolution. You are aware. There's just no inside or outside. And have you had that experience of dissolution? What typically happens in the fourth stage, which is the arising and passing, is this what they call an arising and passing event, where... Um, uh, everything becomes concentrated, deeply concentrated, and you can see wherever you turn your attention these ari this arising and passing. Um, sometimes I describe it as a, a casino arises, like a white light in, in visual experience arises, but it's really characterized by this staccato-y sense uh, and the solidness begins to give way highly concentrated state and as that as the the solidness begins to give way you move into this flow state that then uh, eventually becomes so pronounced that the barrier between inside and out dissolves and you cannot detect the body in the sensing space making sense or some of you may have had this experience maybe some of you have not but this is the the progression of what these insights tend to, to lead to. The um, the dissolution experience, that profound flow state, is a highly concentrated state and will last varying lengths of time and then you'll be dumped out of it into what they call the knowledge of the miseries so that you'll have had this deep insight into not-self, you'll have had this deep insight into impermanence and this deep sight into unsatisfactoriness. And uh, people often initially respond to that being quite frightened that there's no solid, continuous experience of self. They become miserable that nothing lasts and nothing can be relied on, and they become disgusted. These are English translations of Pali words disgusted that you live in a body and that the body won't last either that the body is made up of these elements and that the beautiful young body that you found so desirable will turn into an old body that will be decrepit um, and then there'll be an undercurrent of the desire to be delivered from suffering that arises in consciousness. And then if you can fall into that, it will take you out, like a current taking you out 
of the knowledge of miseries into what's called reobservation, where you begin to integrate deeply these understandings that actually there is no self, so there's no need to defend anything. That nothing lasts so that it isn't useful to cling to the lasting of it. Uh, and this is a kind of crossroads in one direction is nihilism, because there is nothing that lasts, nothing has value, and in the other direction is this idea to fully engage in every moment that you can engage while you can because nothing lasts and you won't be able to do it always. So you don't let the moments slip by without engaging in them. You don't uh, necessarily uh, postpone anything. You begin to really understand that there's no later. If you don't do it now, you can never do it. The thing that you can do now, if you don't do now, you can never do it because the moment that you could have done it in is gone and there's no way to get it back. Um, and then the aging. In the middle of life, really, uh, when you're young, of course, you're not aging, you're growing, you're developing, so it's a, it's a a contrary understanding. People under, say, the late 20s don't really have a sense of aging because they're not aging, they're growing. And then uh, when you begin to age, it's a kind of slow process in your, in your midlife, you know, between, say, 30 and 55, you think that it's going to be totally manageable and you'll be able to go on like this. You'll be able to age like this forever. And then when you get into your earlier mid-50s, it suddenly accelerates at an amazing rate. <laughs> oh, till 70. <laughs> so, and, and then, so 55 to 75 is old age. We, we hate that in our culture. The idea that old age would start at 55, and I'm, I'm just talking biology here, I'm not talking mental attitude. <clears throat> but then at 70, at 75, you go into old, old age, and, old. and then it begins to, I guess, this accelerate even more. I don't know yet, but I hear. Yeah. It's almost like the difference between a one-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh-huh. Later, there's that much difference. Like, oh. I, I went to lunch with an 81-year-old uh, and a 74 or a six-year-old, and so I was the youngest. That never happens. <laughs> they laughed at me um, and said that um, for them, uh, 76 was really different than 72. Uh, really, really different. So that would be the, the change at 75 again. Both of them said that. No, the 81-year-old looked like she was 60. Oh, really? Yeah. The other one had Parkinson's and oh. had gotten shingles and then had gotten that horrible thing where you you never get rid of shingles. I have that already. Oh, do you, yeah. George? Not to get rid of? You well, have the not to get rid of? I have it. It flares up all oh. the time. No way. When you got shingles, did you get that shot? I got, I didn't get the shot because my my insurance company wouldn't pay for it. It was like four hundred dollars, 
then it was like 250 and then I thought oh I'll get it I'll get it but it was 250 and then I didn't and then I got shingles and then my insurance company covered the shot because I had shingles. <laughs> okay, but you did get a shot <laughs> after got, you got shingles. Yeah, and then I got the shot. Within three days? Um, probably. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I'm relieved. I went to urgent care. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, yes. Impermanence. Impermanence. Mm -hmm. Yep. The shingles does come and go. <laughs> <laughs> it's chicken pox, I hear. Yes. You did oh. have chicken pox as a child. I did. You did. So, um, I, you know, Mahasi uh, uh, has written a commentary on the progress of insight, and, and, and really what he's doing here is setting this up. And the first part of the progress of insight is really about having the, the developing the practice so that you have this experience of dissolution. And it's quite controversial uh, to offer this to householders because the knowledge of the miseries can be so disruptive. So what I like to say is that in, in my teaching practice, what I've noticed is that people who live quite inauthentically have a much harder time with the, these insights because they have a great difficulty after they have them of continuing with the inauthenticity. And so if you can't manage the inauthenticity and you've built personal relationships and work relationships around your capacity to be inauthentic, there's an upheaval that comes. That's too painful. That you can't do the inauthenticity anymore and, and people react to your abrupt change from the capacity of inauthenticity and how you've presented yourself to this very different presentation. Um, so what I suggest as, as a part of the practice is that you begin pushing into an authentic ex expression. Uh, and then uh, um, the more you do that or the more authentic you've already been living, the less of a big deal it becomes. Some people go through the, the dissolution and dark night experience and it's not particularly disruptive or difficult. And some people go through and it's terribly disruptive. And that would be, I don't have any data to support that, it's just a sort of impression that I've gotten from my, my teaching practice. That if you set up your relationships on these uh, inauthentic premises and you can't do it anymore, there's a big disruption that happens. Um, so part of this is then to really be come into an understanding of of who you are and begin the process of uh, presenting yourself actually the way that you are. Uh, it works the same way as in authenticity. You present yourself the way you are, and that the people that want that come forward. You still have to be picky about who you pick. But you don't have to be inauthentic to maintain the relationship. Often what happens to people who are, have a sense of insecurity in their attachment is that they see somebody that they want and they don't think that, that who they are will attract that. And so they try and intuit who the other person wants and then they do their best to present that so that they can draw that person to them. But then that relationship is going to depend on your being able to manifest that inauthentic expression 
to keep them interested. I know a lot of us think that eventually we will be able to throw off the cloak of inauthenticity and that they'll have seen through it and want the person underneath, but actually a lot of the time they just see the inauthentic presentation and they, they want that. And then you don't offer it to them anymore and they don't want the authentic you and that becomes quite hurtful even though you've misrepresented yourself the whole time. Uh, is that making sense? But if you, if you find that uh, having been easily inauthentic becomes so painful that you can't do it anymore, then there's big disruption. And if you're authentic, uh, this process has a tendency to make it easier to be that. And so you can uh, settle in. So that part of reobservation where you really take in that th this is how it is, and all of that clinging and all of that agitation and all of that uh, desire for it to be different than it is, which is the source of so much suffering, falls away and you don't suffer in the same way. Is that making sense? So what we're going to do tonight is a see-hear-feel technique, double noting. See-hear-feel, then the Vedna of it, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But the main focus of the, this meditation is going to be watching where your attention moves from object to object. So in between labeling, really paying attention to the process of the mind choosing its next object. You don't have to note that in any special way. You're just present. You know that, say, you're in see space and then the mind is drawn to hear space. Was there activation in hear space and feel space and see space? And why then? Uh, what was it? Or just even observing the me me mechanism of the mind, body-mind choosing the next object, paying attention to that aspect. Does that make any sense? Doesn't it help to label that? Um, sure, if you want to, you could. I don't have a ready label for you. Um, where is it going? Where is it going? See! Where is it going? So you're just going? paying attention to the transition from one... To the next. To the next. I'm in C and my attention isn't moving. I'm in C, my attention isn't moving. Right. I'm in C, my attention isn't moving. I'm aware peripherally of an arising of activity in here space, uh, but I'm still in C space and the mind hasn't moved yet. Then I'm aware peripherally of some sensation in feel space. My mind then moves to feel space, really at that level of paying attention. And then you're supposed to put pleasant, unpleasant, neutral in also. Right. Oh, my. Well, okay, so the only way I can do this is on the in-breath notice, pick one, and then... Out-breath, pick one? Yeah. No. <laughs> Full round of breath, okay. only one. All right. The one that's the most prominent. Yeah. So now, inhale, exhale, pick one, unpleasant, neutral, and where to go. Right. So it's not so much sitting with what we're observing, but paying attention to where it's going. Right. You don't want to necessarily inhibit it or control it in any way. You just really want to be present for the transition. 
And we want to push any sort of thinking to the background, right? Um, well, you would want to note thinking either as see or here. So if I have a memory and I have a visual, let's see, but I'm, I'm actually thinking. Well, let's see here and feel which aspect of it did your attention, was it drawn to? Let's just say it's C. Okay. See how it I'll goes. So any comments or questions about what we just did? <coughs> it's kind of difficult. Does that mean you succeeded or didn't? Um, I guess I didn't have uh, much uh, concentration tonight. It's all right, though. It'll come back. Yeah. I like doing that. Mm -hmm. I did like the music. <laughs> Didn't bother me so much. <coughs> there was one song they did that I find the lyrics really offensive to, so I didn't like that. takes me to my, <coughs> my uh, mother gave me a Led Zeppelin al album for Christmas when I was a junior in high school, which was completely misattuning to me. Uh, I would never have listened to it. And I, so I asked her why she got me Led Zeppelin. She said, she asked my boyfriend. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he, asked she asked my boyfriend. She didn't know he was my boyfriend, oh. but he was. <laughs> Did she refer to him as that? No. Oh, okay. Tommy Fogel. She asked Tommy Fogel what he thought I would like, and he said Led Zeppelin. It was really heartbreaking. They had so little idea who I was. Maybe he wanted the Led Zeppelin album. It could be. He was missing too. <laughs> he was missing too. That was what was heartbreaking about it. <laughs> I totally forgave her because she did the right thing, right? She didn't know what to do, and so, so she, she asked. asked. And mm -hmm. he completely blew it. <laughs> and how was that for you? Um, I was um, able to stay with the hearing and the. Uh, a lot of hearing. Mm -hmm. and so uh, I think that was a mockingbird. Oh. It went in sets of three. Uh -huh. They do that. Um, and the music, the music started to, uh, when we added, um, it was pleasant mostly, and then it got to be that techno beat, and it was like unpleasant. Mm -hmm. um, there was a real big pain. Um, I'm having sympathetic esophagus cancer. Oh. Um, Who's got it? Oh. And there's this yeah, and it's painful. So I'm, no, 
that I noticed that I went, um, and so um, my mind went to Terry. He died three days ago. He's probably being buried right now. And um, Terry. Terry Rose. Yeah. And um, I was so relieved. He'd suffered so horrible, horrible way to go. Um, and I was so relieved when I heard he died um, Monday to see that I didn't grieve. And so I think. And there's this condition of acid reflex that causes this. So I have acid reflex um, esophagus pain. And so I think I need to grieve. So that would come, and then I would get um, sad for Terry. Mm -hmm. And then an interesting thing happened. Um, I was on hearing, and then all of a sudden I went to the amount of water that this doctor, my husband and I are going to, he thinks we should be drinking. <laughs> this is a, a gallon, and mine is 64 ounces. And I went, how did I go from hearing to the water? And it was thirst. Mm. I had this sensation of hope. So I was able to go back and go, how did that connect? And so, but the hearing, I couldn't connect to continuity. Mm -hmm. to con um, conditionality because I would be hearing the mockingbird and then a car would go by so that didn't have anything to do with the mockingbird it that might not it might not be the content but the area of activation yeah. area of activation oh wonderful well that's great to understand that's how you refer to that the area of activation well your, your attention is in sound. auditory so yeah. you you move around in auditory because you're sensitive to that, and then and in that's the conditionality. Oh, yeah. I see. That makes total sense. Yeah. I was going to challenge you. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you said esophageal cancer. My first boyfriend, Joe Perkins, died of esophageal cancer, and then I went to Facebook where they said, "So happy he's no longer in pain because he had been in so much pain." Um, you know, these associations are so rapid and um, uh, that, that really to begin to be sensitive to them because they're, they're firing in the background even if we're not paying attention to them and they're coloring the way that we, we interpret the present moment. So the sadness of that arises in the background and we don't pay attention to it and then we mistake that sadness that's arising for some condition of the present moment. But it's not. But it's not. Mm -hmm. And that's what, why we want to begin to really have a sensitivity to where the mind is going and it, the associations are so fast and it's based on pattern the, the way memory works is that every, everything that the mind patterns and, and it's the way your conditioned mind patterns is associated in a string of memories so that if something happens in the present moment the whole resonance of how you've identified that pattern begins to resonate and so that's where these images just keep coming up. But it also is the present moment where the sensing is happening. Good. I was thinking about, you know, me being a special ed teacher and my kids that are ADHD, and I know so fast, what that must be like. Because mm -hmm. I feel like my mind is going fast. Well, it's an ADHD, this hyper-focus on other people's mind states, um, one way to look at it. 
so that that's, it's an external focusing and it's an external regulation, emotional regulation strategy. Attention and deficit. Are we deficit talking about hyperactivity? There's a book called Scattered. Yeah, you have to stop. Maybe that'll be myself. Which is useful for that. Yeah. It's, um, because when you first said that, I completely thought that that was so absurd. Like, oh. The, um, that it's, a, it's attachment-based. Yes. But I thought about it a little bit. Do you know what that attachment would be? No, it can be any of them, but it's... Any a, it's um. It's an insecure attachment response. Uh, I keep pointing to this. In France, you know, the, they have mandated that there'll be one adult per 12 children. In school. In school. Is this how it is here? Probably not, depending on how resourced the school is. But you could have 30 or 40 kids in, in, to the uh, one adult ratio. Well, that's typical for public schools yeah. across the country. It's not a, it's not enough for the children to be emotionally regulated, so that they're in a in a competition for emotional regulation from the adult, since they still need the adult to regulate them. So they're in a state of constant dysregulation, which is what causes the hyperactivity. At least that's the theory. And then, of course. Because their brain is developing, they grow that in the in the brain, and then it becomes a a condition of of how they're can it becomes a condition of the physical structure of the brain. Oh dear! Yeah, when I think of the kids, and so how it's a physical condition of the brain. Well, that's how it grows. Uh And then, can you untrain it? Well, you can do attachment repair. To change the structure, the so brain. that they don't activate into the hyperactivity. It is. Uh, we do have defense, although I would rather have education. Mm. <laughs> we do have our you military. Mean a defense budget? We do have mean? our military, but I would rather have education. <laughs> I would rather have a school where. There were there was an adult for every twelve kids or every ten kids, so we didn't have to drug our kids to be able to send them to the public school system that we created. The oh, and then that's just awful because then there's they turn into zombies, right. and it's just not who they are, and it's just awful. Well, giving methamphetamine to to school children is just not a good idea. I don't care so how much money they make. Yeah, just <laughs> so many parents are like, oh. Well, they'll be able to survive in this system where there aren't enough caregivers. That's basically what we're saying. We're going to have to drug you so that you can survive in the system of not enough care that we've created. And then I feel in the neighborhoods where that is, there's so many children like that. And the class size is even larger. Right. Well, it would be worse. Yes. When I used to teach in South Central, all the kids were coming completely unregulated. And then there was me. Right. (laughs) Also unregulated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This is Deepening of Practice.
It's a Donna-based thing. You've heard my spiel a million times. I have some flyers over there. There's a, there, I'm doing a half day long at the uh, Echo Park Center on Saturday at 10 a.m. if you want to come and sit talk about um, Meaningful Life. Oh, this Saturday. Yeah. Oh, I have to go dance. Okay. What are you da- where are you dancing? Five Rhythms. Oh, who's doing it? Kate. Kate. Yeah. Nice. Where? Oh, at a really big place. Um, 